Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Previously on the History of Byzantium. Constantine VII died peacefully in 959 having spent much of his life under the thumb of Romanos Le Capinos, he was comforted in his last moments that his son would not have to endure the same fate. Sadly, for the Porfiroyenitas, four years later, his grandsons would be plunged into the exact same scenario. First Nicephorus Phocas, and then John Zimiskis took control of the government and kept the princes in the shadows. On his way home from campaign in 975, John became ill and died early the next year. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 150, Basil Lecapinos. We began this podcast century with a power struggle between generals, admirals, patriarchs, and the empress, all trying to exert control over the young Constantine VII. For the next 15 years of narrative, we return to this internal conflict as a new cast of characters vie for the right to dominate the Macedonian dynasty. This power struggle is not limited to the battle between the palace and its leading generals. There is conflict within the court as well. When John died, there was an obvious tension between his extended family and the Macedonian princes. Basil and Constantine were now old enough to exercise power for themselves, but John's circle had already begun to think of themselves as imperial heirs. The plot thickens when we consider who John's chief minister was, Basil Lecapinos, the man who had served both Phocas and Zimiskis, but was also the prince's great-uncle. When John died, it was the eunuch who was in charge of the government and had the power to decide who would rule next. But as so many figures have decided over the centuries, why choose at all? Why shouldn't I continue to hold the reins? Basil's date of birth is unknown. His mother was a barbarian concubine, so to be kind to Romanus Lecapinos, we'll assume it was after the death of his wife in 922. Basil was castrated as an infant to prevent him from becoming a threat to his legitimate siblings. 
but he was raised in the palace and given a first-rate education. He became close to his older sister, Helena, who of course married Constantine Seventh. The two men got on well, and Basil was promoted to a position of authority under his brother-in-law. Basil grew to be extremely influential and well-connected. His status as a eunuch kept him close to power, while as a member of the imperial family, he was given wealth and opportunities he would have otherwise been denied. He was able to go on campaign, which gave him an ideal opportunity to make friends amongst the Focads and the Korkuai. As you know, he worked with John to capture the city of Samosata in 958. He was also a patron of the arts. Several survivals from this era were commissioned by him, and he was accused by the patriarch Polyuctus of enriching himself through corrupt practices. Antony Caldellis speculates that when Constantine Seventh died, Basil hoped to become the prime minister for his son. But Romanus II wisely, perhaps, did not want his uncle looking over his shoulder. He preferred his own man, Joseph Bringus. But when Romanus died, Basil sprang into action. His wealth enabled him to bring a military entourage onto the streets to decide the succession for Nicephorus Phocas. Basil was restored to his position of influence, but he was never going to be treated like a member of the Phocas family. With Nicephorus growing cantankerous and unpopular, the eunuch switched horses. He supported John in his coup and reaped the rewards by finally being given the reins of government while Zimisces was on campaign. John's death then left Basil, finally, in charge. In his mid to late fifties, Le Capinos knew that this was his last chance to truly exercise power. He took the opportunity to allow his 18-year-old great-nephew to become the senior emperor. But he maintained control of the government. Basil II would receive the acclamations but the eunuch would use his considerable influence to dominate decision-making. He had all the contacts, all the experience, and all the authority. We've seen many teenage emperors take the throne before, and they too must have wrestled with experienced advisors for control of the steering wheel. But few of them had to deal with someone quite as influential and indispensable as Basil Le Capinos. And of course they were family. Doubtless the eunuch felt a great deal of affection for the boy who'd grown up in front of his eyes, the grandson of his sister Helena. One of our historians, uh, Michael Pselos, claims that he would embrace young Basil in an affectionate manner and watched over him like a foster parent. He encouraged the emperor to imitate his method of work and learn the ropes in an obedient and cooperative fashion. This was sensible at the start of their collaboration, but as I'm sure you can imagine, it will grate over time. For now, though, the two men were united, and their decision shut the door on the extended Kurkuai family, 
as in Zimiskiz's family. That decision would have immediate consequences. Uh, for simplicity's sake, from now on, I will refer to the emperor as Basil and his chief minister as Le Capinos. The senior man in John's extended circle was his brother-in-law, Bardas Skliros. We've met Skliros several times before. He delayed Sviatoslav's raid on Thrace with an ambush, then raced east to block Bardas' focus from reaching the Bosphorus. He then delivered the coup de grace to the routing Rus at Dristra. Skliros was probably about the same age as Zimiskis, so in his fifties. He was tall and admired by many, a wealthy magnate and a clever military commander. He may well have imagined that he would take over from the childless John when the latter died. However, he was not in a favourable location when Zimiskis became ill. He had stayed behind in the mountains, performing his duties as Dukes of Mesopotamia. Le Capinos knew that a challenge from this direction was likely. Since Nicephorus took the throne in 963, the Eastern army had become accustomed to having their senior general on the throne. To most soldiers, this seemed like the natural state of affairs. A war hero, as Vasilevs, commanded instant respect, and he was likely to promote fellow soldiers to the lucrative administrative roles near their homes. Probably Sclerus had no plans to harm either Basil or Constantine. Like his two predecessors, he would simply shove them aside, stick them somewhere under house arrest and wheel them out for various processions. They could live the pampered life of a royal family while he administered the empire for them. I'll slightly paraphrase Professor Caldellis, Skleros's revolt exemplified the tendency of the imperial system to test a new regime for weakness. Just a few months after Zimiskis' death, Skleros was on the march. He led the troops under his command to Melitene and seized the city. This gave him a secure base from which he could recruit allies and collect taxes. His men now hailed him emperor, including a large contingent of Armenian mercenaries. The rebellion was on. Lecapinos immediately dispatched orders to intercept Skleros before he could cross the mountains. An embassy was sent to try and negotiate while the rest of the imperial army began to gather. The nearest commander uh, was the commander of Tarsus, Evstathios Malainos. The Malainos family were intimate allies of the Focads, and one of the things that the government were relying on was the enmity that existed between the Focads and the Korkuai. The clans were competitive anyway, but the murder of Nicephorus had obviously escalated tensions. The other senior commanders included the two conquerors of Antioch, the eunuch Petros, another Phocas loyalist, and the ambitious Michael Vortzis, one of Nicephorus's murderers. The fact that these disparate figures 
we're all still in office, is a demonstration of the complex web of Byzantine politics. Men who could command the loyalty of soldiers were generally made use of, and the great families were usually mollified rather than left out in the cold. Meanwhile, Scleros was also gathering allies. The Korkui had strong links with the Armenian leaders on the border, the princes of Tehran, for example, the men who'd willed their kingdom to the empire, joined Scleros's cause. The general also received some Arab cavalry from the emir of Mosul. This was Abu Taklib, the nephew of Seyf The emir made a marriage alliance with Scleros's family, gambling that if the usurper became emperor, he would have secured his state from Roman attack. Scleros advanced into the mountains and was temporarily blocked by loyalist troops. This was a hairy moment for the rebel. Soon afterwards, he had to execute the head of his bodyguard on suspicion that he was going to defect. However, he made his way through the passes to Lycandos, where the two sides met in battle. Probably, There were only a few thousand on each side. There hadn't been time to muster the whole army. And as you know, Antioch had to remain garrisoned, so Vortzis, who was the Dukes of Antioch, can't have brought all his men with him. Scleros was victorious in this opening exchange, driving the imperial forces into retreat. He was able to capture their baggage, which included some much-needed cash, and then soon afterwards, Michael Vortzis defected to him. And now it's not clear if Michael willingly switched sides, or if he was captured in the rout and induced to. But either way, Vortzis brought Antioch into the rebel camp, thus shutting down any danger to the revolt from the southeast. Vortzis was needed on campaign, and so an Arab Christian Ubed Allah was put in charge of Antioch. As Scleros advanced, other cities and officers switched sides. Historian Mark Witto argues that the goal of most Romans was not to appear too committed to the losing side. That way they'd be able to maintain their status when the war was over. Scleros's victory brought a string of defections, because he now looked a plausible prospect for the throne. One of the key capitulations was the Kiviriotone fleet. They would be needed for any attack on Constantinople. Scleros passed the winter in the east before marching west in spring 977. Petros and the reconstituted imperial army was camped not far from Dorylaeum, on the road to the capital. Lekepinos sent a fellow eunuch, Leo, with more troops and chests full of coins. As the two sides eyed one another, Leo sent out agents offering hefty bribes for anyone who would switch sides. This was a similar tactic to the one which Scleros himself had used against Bardas Focus a few years earlier. The tax-raising powers of Constantinople remained one of the keys to its strong record against usurpers. On this occasion, 
Scleros was able to spin the bribery as a sign of imperial desperation and keep most of his army together. However, Leo took a page out of the military handbooks and marched at night around Scleros's camp. He advanced with a contingent of the army into the eastern provinces. The strategy was clear. Threaten the homes and families of Scleros's men in order to draw them away from the Bosphorus. This manoeuvre was successful, and many soldiers in the rebel camp began to slip away. To stop the rot, Vortzis was sent with some troops to shadow Leo's force and prevent them from doing any damage. In an unexpected turn of events, emissaries from Aleppo were at that moment passing through this region with the annual tribute. This was a significant amount of gold. The rebels desperately needed it in order to keep paying their army. Realising this, the imperial troops had to stop them. Neither Leo nor Vortzis had expected a pitched battle, but now they were forced into it. On this occasion, the loyalist troops emerged victorious, and Vortzis again fled. A group of Sclerosis Armenian mercenaries were captured after the battle and were all massacred. The official explanation given was that they had been the first to hail the rebel as emperor, but it seems likely that the anti-Armenian sentiment we saw expressed during Nicephorus's reign was at work. This defeat was a serious blow to Scleros, though more politically than militarily. His main army was still camped down the road near Dorylaeum and was in good shape, but the chance of men defecting to the imperial cause greatly increased with every setback. Momentum was key for any rebellion. The challenges to actually capturing Constantinople were so great that a usurper needed everything to go their way. In order to restore his aura of destiny, Scleros knew he needed to act quickly, so he ordered his men to advance on Petros's position and seek battle. Only a clear victory would keep his bid for the throne on the tracks. But Scleros was still a good commander. He didn't push to fight at the first opportunity. He made camp within sight of the imperial army and waited for the right moment. Several men took this opportunity to defect to Petros and convinced him to attack the weakened rebel. The eunuch was persuaded despite some on his staff pointing out that if they kept stalling, Scleros would only get weaker. Battle was joined at a place called Regius, and Scleros's cavalry won the day. They drove off their opposite numbers and put the loyalist infantry to flight. In the rout that followed, Petros was killed. Many of those who'd recently defected to the imperial side were also captured. Scleros decided to blind them, since that was the traditional punishment for those who betrayed an emperor. Once again, everything seemed to be going Scleros's way. His army marched to Nicaea, which surrendered. Meanwhile, the Kiviriotone fleet seized Abydus, 
the customs post on the Hellespont. They were able to block grain shipments going to the capital, which would be key to forcing the populace to turn on Le Capinos. However, events moved quickly, and the palace still had access to resources that a rebel could only dream of. The Bishop of Antioch had recently died, so Le Capinos sent along a new prelate with an offer to Ubed Allah, the man whose Cleros had appointed to hold the city. Ubed was told that he would be made governor for life if he joined the imperial cause. He accepted and shut Scleros's men out of the city. Meanwhile, the imperial fleet sailed for Abydos. They broke the blockade which Scleros's son Romanus was managing. Then they chased the remaining ships into the Aegean and dispersed them. By the end of 977, the two sides had reached stalemate. Scleros controlled most of Anatolia, but had no ships to carry him across the Bosphorus. The palace securely held the west and the sea, but had no forces capable of defeating the rebel. This is a similar scenario to the standoff between Michael of Amorium and Thomas the Slav in the 9th century. However, Michael had been an experienced general and felt confident of the support of the Tachmata. Le Capinos was not so blessed. He was well aware that Scleros was a popular figure who the capital's troops would not object to serving. The people of Constantinople loved the Macedonian dynasty, but their affection probably didn't extend to eunuchs. What the regime needed was a figure even more popular than Scleros, but just as capable. Only one man fit that description. Bardas Phocas. The son of Leo and nephew of Nicephorus was still in exile on the island of Chios. He had been there for seven years since his own bid for the throne had been thwarted. Thwarted by Scleros. During the winter of 977, Phocas was put on a boat and brought to the palace. There, before the emperor, he was offered the role of domestic of the Scoli which he accepted. He swore oaths of loyalty to Basil and then set off for Anatolia. Historians are united in seeing this as a desperate but necessary move. To reappoint a man who had proclaimed himself emperor was a highly risky choice, but the thinking was clear. Phocas's appearance in Anatolia would disrupt the loyalty of Scleros's officers. Those who were natural Phocas allies could hardly fight against the nephew of Nicephorus. Next time, it's Phocas vs. Scleros, part two. A battle that will prolong, rather than end, this period of civil war. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.